Our first scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of Jonah, found on page 811 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 through 20. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Quiet your hearts with me in prayer. Help us, O Lord, to hear your call but by your spirit to know what to do, what following might look like, how our lives may be different because we not only hear your call but respond to it. For you, O Lord, have the words of eternal life. Amen. Our Hebrew scripture lesson today uh, begins with a thought that might for some be a little theologically troubling. Uh, Emily just read the passage, and I don't even know if you tripped over the fact that lots of commentaries have been written about the 10th verse of the third chapter of Jonah, which reads this way, when God saw what they did, they being the people in Nineveh, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God changed his mind. Here the commentators trip all over themselves. God is immutable, all-knowing, changeless. They also say the Bible is without error or confusion. So when the text says that God changed his mind about the calamity he had said he would bring on Nineveh, there's a whole bunch of word salad explanations explaining how the grand, all-powerful, all-knowing deity could say, eh, let's do it this way instead. Now, I'm a little less troubled by that passage. I need to let you know that it is a categorical theological problem. But in fact, the prospect that God can change God's mind 
I actually find comforting. It's possible that God's disposition towards us could be changed. Now, for the sake of brevity, the lectionary editor has left out uh, a few verses from the third chapter of Jonah. I'm not sure why, because there's only a few more verses between where we end in verse 5 and where it concludes in verse 10. So let me read you that middle ground pace. We ended with verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. Continuing in verse 6, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made to Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. No human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, they shall not drink water. Humans and animals will be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily unto God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows, said the king. God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. That was the king of Nineveh's prayer. Maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind. Please note, Jonah's proclamation to the Ninevites was actually not a call for repentance. Jonah merely preaches, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Absolutely no way out of it. That's his proclamation. You're all toast. In Jonah's sermon, the people have no more agency, no choice. There is an inevitability of destruction. In fact, in the next chapter, we read about how Jonah was so disappointed because God's mind was changed. He was hoping to watch one of those exploding video, uh, uh, building videos that you watch where they set all the detonators and then blow them up. I can see a lot of people saying, I've gone down that YouTube rabbit hole many times. Oh, look, it's going to be a grain elevator. Oh, look, an obsolete hotel. Oh, look, a housing complex and the charges go off. That's what Jonah thought he was going to get a real live front seat to see. But it didn't happen. The whole book of Jonah is this anti-prophet story, anti-prophet, opposite of a prophet story. The prophets usually proclaimed in order to bring change. That's what they did. God said, go tell the people to repent. Go tell the people to treat one another with mercy. Go tell the people to not exploit the poor. They need to change or their destruction will be inevitable. But there's still this window, this opportunity. There will still be a chance for you to keep the calamity from befalling you. That was the job of a prophet, to bring the word of the Lord to the people and let them know that there is a potential that things could be better and the outcomes could be changed. But Jonah throughout the entire book is no prophet. Not only does he not want the people to change, but he completely avoids going to talk to them in the first place. You, of course, know the story. He's told to go to Nineveh in the first verse of the book. Instead, he goes down to Joppa. He buys tickets for Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. There's that big storm thing. Everybody on the boat gets upset, and the shipmates toss him over the rail to placate his angry God, and everything for everybody else is fine. And then there's the big brute fish that swallows him up, and poem of repentance in the second chapter, and then the fish belches him up on the shore because you can't keep a good man down. 
And then we start today with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time. Of course, that verse in our lesson today is worth building an entire sermon on. There's a reason why we know the story, though, because it's just a great piece of literature. It is a phenomenal story, and for me to stand up here in the pulpit and say, here's what the book of Jonah is about, is to trivialize how complex, how rich, how amazing this narrative happens to be. But what makes it a great story to me this morning as I prepared to read it again is the implication that God can change God's mind. It means that we have agency in being able to shift God's disposition towards the calamity we may be about to experience. Now, as the preacher, you get to that point on your path, and then you've got all of these different directions where we could go, right? You know, I could talk to you about the calamity of climate change, and if we don't get our act together and start not using so much carbon belching up into the sky at a high rate, making the planets a little hotter in some places and confusing the direction of climate in others. That would be one direction that I could take it. I could spin it off into a whole issue about poverty and how first world countries are exploiting third world countries for their labor and for their resources. And we could all shed a bitter tear. We could put on sackcloth and our carbon-denouncing ashes of repentance. On the other hand, the political animal in me could talk about corruption and the destruction of the democratic process. Call for repentance for chasing power at the exclusion of embracing those who are the least among us. But in some way, that runs the risk of turning us all into Jonah, does it not? That we could cry out about all the evil in the world, most of which we have a minuscule amount of power to change, and so we'll just go sit on the side of the hill and watch for the coming conflagration. Those big carbon users are gonna get theirs. Now it'll swallow us up too, but won't it be fun to watch them scream? These are the tempting sermons to preach, and they contain their truth, but the story in the end was not about the Ninevites. The story was about Jonah, about God keeping Jonah alive through adversity so that he could be called a second time. And in fact, in the fourth chapter, we find out that God keeps Jonah alive a third time. So he can call him again. If you don't recall, uh, Jonah is sitting on the hill watching for God to wipe out Nineveh, and then there is no kablooey, and Jonah gets annoyed, and he's pouting, and the sun is hot, and he's grumpy. And so God makes a bush grow up, and so he can be in the shade of the bush, and so he's a little less grumpy, because at least now he's not out in the hot sun. But then when he goes to sleep, the bush dies. So when he wakes up the next morning, he's back out in the hot sun. sun. And there's the punchline. Jonah is sad and grumpy over losing his bush. 
God points out to Jonah that he is more upset over the death of his bush than he was over the potential slaughter of 120,000 men, women, and children. In the closing two verses of the book of Jonah, you, you get this amazing punchline, God's third time to try and get Jonah to figure out what it means to be a prophet. You're concerned about this bush, says God, for which you did not labor, for which you did not grow. It came into being in night and perished in night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which are there more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? That's how the book ends. I love the fact that it ends with, if you don't care about the people, what about their pets, for crying out loud? You don't even care about their, their animals, their parakeets and cats and puppies. You are one cold person. Today, we are going to ordain elders and deacons and install them into their terms of office. And perhaps it's a little heavy-handed to suggest that our nominating committee has been the voice of the Lord coming to these Jonas. I do know that some of them were maybe asked two or three times in previous years before they finally said yes. To my knowledge, none of them spent time in the belly of a great fish but I don't know that for certain. I just know that today we're going to ask them to engage in Jonah's third call. We're going to ask them to care about people. And for that matter, care about their pets. And, you know, as pastor, I occasionally get, I don't want to bring this up to the congregation, but we had to say goodbye to our dog and, you know, can, can you be in prayer? And my answer is, of course. <laughs> No, I'm a, a dog lawyer. I'll even pray for the occasional cat. <laughs> but the call to Jonah was to care more about people than about his comfort. And while we could talk about the big grand schemes of global change, the real call to Jonah was not to save 120,000 Ninevites. The call to him was to prioritize others over his comfort. That's a sermon that touches us all. And strangely enough, ties elegantly into Emily's confession. We maybe read the same passages and guided by the same spirit. Our tendency to deflect if I care, I might have to move, get up, go outside into the cold. If I care, I might have to put down something I'd rather do and pick up something that I feel is important to do. But in the end, if you're caring about people, then what comfort is more important than that? Or as in the case of our gospel lesson, the disciples were told, you're no longer going to care about fish. You're going to have the privilege to care about people. And we recognize and set it apart today our elders and our deacons to acknowledge with them that in reality, that's hard. That's hard. And so they will need the prayers, encouragement, appreciation, 
of you because we've asked them to do something a little uncomfortable because you're that important. Amen. Please stand and join with me in our affirmation of faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son.